0: Hi everyone and welcome to There and Back Again, I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight we face a very straightforward challenge. Tonight, as you might say, we are simply going to walk into Mordor and make it to Mount Doom in Chapter 3 of Book 6 of The Lord of the Rings and at last come to the end of all things. I was wildly optimistic, even by my own standards. I was wildly optimistic at the beginning of last week's session that we would cover three whole chapters, I suppose two and a half whole chapters, but I'm very, very glad that we have preserved the entirety of chapter three of book six, Mount Doom for our discussion this evening, because this is it. This is the climax of the primary plot of The Lord of the Rings, though by no means the realization or the full manifestation of the purpose of the story of The Lord of the Rings. Much more on that over the course of the next five weeks. Maybe it's going to take us four or five weeks, I would say, to finish out the end of uh, The Return of the King. And then, of course, we're going to spend probably three weeks on the appendices to The Lord of the Rings because there is just so much material. I'm going to do my best not to make that dry. What I'm going to do, in fact, is take some of the material present in the appendices for The Lord of the Rings and simply tell you stories. I'm going to parse some of that information and present it to you in, uh, hopefully, a more accessible format see if I can do that. And then, of course, we're going to launch into our discussion of the Peter Jackson movie trilogy. We are going to spend, well, the Peter Jackson movie trilogies, in fact, because we're also going to go all the way back to the beginning of There and Back Again and talk about The Hobbit. So about five more weeks on Book 6 of The Return of the King, Book 6 of The Lord of the Rings, about three weeks on the appendices after that, and then we are going to undertake a 12-week marathon where we are going to look at each of the Peter Jackson movies in two-week chunks. So we're going to watch the first half of Fellowship, then the second half of Fellowship, so on and so forth, all the way through to The Battle of the Five Armies, and you had better not forget that article, let me tell you, or Peter Jackson's lawyers will be after you. Extended editions only, of course, says Marshall. Of course, of course, there is... Gosh, almost no argument for the theatrical cuts of these movies. I think that argument becomes a little more complex by the time you get to the Hobbit trilogy. But certainly for the Lord of the Rings movies, no argument for the theatrical cuts. I think the extended editions are absolutely the way that those movies were supposed to be seen and supposed to be appreciated. But all of that lies in our future. We are going to be, we are going to need to be rescued by eagles from the cracks of doom themselves before we can even think about approaching the movie adaptations tonight. Chapter three, Mount Doom. Let's begin with our first slide. In the morning, a grey light came again, for in the high regions of the west, wind still blew, but down on the stones behind the fences of the black land, the air seemed almost dead, chill and yet stifling. Sam looked up out of the hollow. The land all about was dreary, flat and drab-hued. On the roads nearby, nothing was moving now, but Sam feared the watchful eyes on the wall of the Eisenmouth, no more than a furlong away northward. Southeastward, far off like a dark standing shadow, loomed the mountain. Smokes were pouring from it, and while those that rose into the upper air trailed away eastward, great rolling clouds floated down its sides and spread out over the land. A few miles to the northeast, the foothills of the ashen Mountains stood like somber grey ghosts, behind which the misty northern heights rose like a line of distant cloud, hardly darker than the lowering sky. Sam tried to guess the distances and to decide what way they ought to take. "'It looks every step of fifty miles,' he muttered gloomily, staring at the threatening mountain, "'and that'll take a week if it takes a day with Mr. Frodo as he is.' He shook his head, and as he worked things out, slowly a new dark thought grew in his mind. Never for long had hope died in his staunch heart, but always until now he had taken some thought for their return. But the bitter truth came home to him at last. At best, their provision would take them to their goal, and when the task was done, there they would come to an end. Alone, houseless, foodless, in the midst of a terrible desert, there could be no return. So that was the job I felt I had to do when I started, thought Sam. To help Mr. Photo to the last step and then die with him? And if that's the job, then I must do it. But I would I would dearly like to see Bywater again and Rosie Cotton and her brothers and the gaffer and Marigold and all. I can't think somehow that Gandalf would have sent Mr. Frodo on this effort, uh, on this errand, if there hadn't been any hope of his ever coming back at all. Things all went wrong when he went down in Moria. I wish he hadn't. He would have done something. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he were turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. As Marshall says in the chat here, Sam almost loses hope. Take a drink? Yes. Yes. Here we are again, as we observed last week, with another moment of... Faltering of Sam's staunch heart, right? We acknowledge that here. Never for long had hope died in his staunch heart. Hope has died there, but it has always returned. It has always been renewed, sometimes from within and sometimes from without, but it has always returned to him again. But now he thinks, well, now there is no hope because now he's looking ahead at the challenges that they must face. Now he is realizing what Frodo realized all the way back in what, the FL Duath, all the way back in, in the the um in the the dead marshes, that, that there is no hope of return. There is a slim hope of success, but no hope of going home again afterward. And now Sam sees that laid out starkly before him. Though even in this moment, his hope does not, in fact, die. Well, Perhaps it does. Perhaps we are moving into a new phase for Sam. This cold defiance. Not a defiance like Aemon on the fields of the Palinor. Not a defiance like Frodo, even. And, and his, his resolute desire to keep moving forward, though it cost him everything. Sam is turning to stone. He is turning to hardier stuff. That is not unprecedented. We'll talk about that in just a moment. First, a little timeline information. It is the morning. In the morning, a gray light came again. For in the high regions, the west wind still blew... It is the morning now of March 19th as the host of the West reaches Minas Morgul at the crossroads there. So to keep track of our parallel timelines, which the narrator is going to make much easier for us as he merges these two timelines and gives us these cutaways to the host of the West and some speculation about the host of the West too. The narrator is going to make that more easy for us as we move forward through this chapter. But for now, we can just pin pin this very neatly. Indeed, it is the morning of March 19th. The host of the West is reaching Minas Morgul. What unexpected detail he asked rhetorically is present in this slide for the first time how is it possible that we have made it all the way through this book that we have made it all the way here to the third chapter of book six of the lord of the rings without ever mentioning Rosie cotton this believe it or not is the introduction of Rosie cotton Rosie cotton also by the way hadn't appeared in any drafts of the lord of the rings there are no excised earlier scenes which feature Rosie this is the first time that her name shows up and she shows up pretty late in the drafting process this is clearly just a new thought that the professor Tolkien had for the end of the story and he didn't go back and and retcon her into the beginning of the fellowship of the ring which we might expect which is one of those adaptive choices which Peter Jackson makes potentially works out rather nicely if you ask me More on Rosie Cotton later. We'll have the opportunity to return to her, of course, in just a few chapters time. Um, Marshall saying, I mentioned in the last session that I enjoy the narrator's intrusions in these chapters by reminding us what is going on simultaneously. It ratchets uh, ratchets up the tension. At this point in the story, we have no idea what the fate of the party at the Black Gate is. In fact, when we crash into the ending of this chapter, we are going to unify our timelines again for the first time since... Well, basically since the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? That was the last time that we had a single unified timeline. We've crossed over, of course, in the course of The Two Towers and in the course of Book Five, the first half of The Return of the King, but we haven't completely unified our timelines since the Fellowship split at Parth Gallen. We are going to do that right at the end of this chapter. And then, of course, moving into next week's reading, too. Yeah. Joseph Shannon saying, I wonder if the Amazon series is going to be Rosie Cotton, The Lost Year's... Joseph, I want that more than I want most things. That is an excellent suggestion, and if you have any sway with Amazon at all, I urge you to make that thing happen. Rosie is rich with potential, I think. In fact, just, just a family saga of the Ganges would be really, really great. Speaking of a family, sa- a family saga of the Gamgees, uh, a family saga of the Gamgees, he said carefully, I would dearly like to see Bywater again and Rosie Cotton and her brothers and the Gaffer and Marigold and all. Marigold is Sam's younger sister. Marigold is the only Gamgee who is younger Than Sam, in fact. Sam is the second youngest of the six children of Hamfast and Bell Gamgee in descending order: Hamson, Halfred, Daisy, May, Samwise, and Marigold. And this is as good an opportunity as any, I suppose, to talk a little about Samwise Gamgee's name, because Gamgee is an odd word. Later, of course, Tolkien will retroactively create an etymology a a family history for the Gamgee name we'll read about that in uh, appendix f of the lord of the rings we'll have the opportunity to delve a little into how this name was formulated in hobbitish westron i suppose but gamgee of course is also a real wor- a real world word it is the name of a doctor who invented a uh, a surgical gauze i suppose in the 19th century um whose name was Joseph Sampson Gamgee, and thereby Gamgee became in the north of England a colloquial term for for cotton wool. Do you call that cotton wool here in the US? I'm just now questioning this for the first time. It may not surprise you to learn that I don't have much cause to buy cotton wool here in the US. Yeah, I think cotton cotton buds, maybe? Cotton buds are Q-tips. This is all very complicated. Cotton wool. Anyway, cotton wool is known colloquially as Gamgee in the north of England, which of course leads to this nice and and the professor assures us completely accidental confluence of ideas that Sam Gamji and Rosie Cotton are connected. That's quite a lovely little bit of synchronicity there. Um in a letter written by by Professor Tolkien, he said, quote, The choice of Gamgee was primarily dictated by alliteration, but I did not invent it. It was caught out of childhood memory as a comic word or name. It was, in fact, the name when I was small in Birmingham for cotton wool, hence the association of the Gamgees with the cottons. I knew nothing of its origin. It is... Let's take a small tangent just to comment on that. The choice of Gamgee was primarily di- uh, directed by alliteration, I am sure that Professor Tolkien is, of course, referring to the repetition of the letter G here in Sam's name. One hard, one soft. That makes a lot of sense. Gamgee is the accepted pronunciation for Sam's last name. But it didn't make me pause and wonder whether or not the professor was instead in his Anglo-Saxon phonetic alliteration mode, if he'd been thinking in those terms, because that would require Sam's surname to be either Jamgee or Gamgee. I have heard people argue that it should, in fact, be Sam Gamgee, that is not a formulation that we would normally find in in British English. So I'm not at all uh, I'm not at all against the idea that his name should be pronounced Gamji. I think that is much more likely and certainly much more pleasurable, certainly much more mellifluous, but yes, I, I like that very much. Um oh, Marshall's saying I went to college in Birmingham, Alabama, so it always throws me a bit when I hear the British city's pronunciation. Birmingham. Birmingham? I can't now pronounce that with an American accent. I can't now think of of what that place is. Birmingham. Yep, no. No idea how that's pronounced in in, uh, Alabamish. Conversation for another time, perhaps. Uh, Seastar says, The fact that Rosie comes out of nowhere may be odd for the story, but it somehow feels real. There's something someone that was important to a character before didn't make a pointed appearance in a previous scene. Sam had a life before this quest, though it feels less real that we didn't see him think of her before this. Um, And Shane's saying, haha, not another Jam G discussion. Yeah, we're we're definitely not getting into that. Birmingham. So I guess it's just the... um, I guess it's just the um yeah the, the stress on the last syllable there birmingham uh, i'm afraid i'm i'm lacking in my ability to properly pronunciate with an american tongue here um and karen is saying that in old english hard g and appellatize g illiterate alliterate uh, just fine yes i'm thinking of the you're right if he's in an old english mode and yes i i, I can see your point there karen i'm thinking about the evolution or or the 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 uh, uh, codification, the, the the concretization into modern English from the old English period. But yes, no, you're absolutely right. If you go back to the, in fact, we're going to get some old English in just a moment where we can maybe even talk about that. I'm not sure I have any... I don't, but we'll see what we can do to, uh, to fill that in. I wanted to talk about the hardening of the will, though. That's enough, that's enough Sam Gamgee for just now, because I wanted to talk about the hardening of the will, because this is not the first time that this has happened. Even as hope died in Sam or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill as if he were turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness, weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue, right? This has happened before, back in The Choices of Master Samwise, the 10th chapter of the fourth volume, right there at the end of The Two Towers, after Frodo's body has been taken by the orcs and Sam realizes his mistake that his master was not in fact dead this whole time and he laid out a person who was still very much alive, we get this quote, quote, it no longer seemed very dark to him in the tunnel. Rather, it was as though he had stepped out of a thin mist into a heavier fog. His weariness was growing, but his will hardened all the more. He thought he could see the light of torches a little way ahead, but try as he could, he could not catch them up. So this is not the first time that in the midst of despair, Sam has found this this power within him, this, this hard stone, steel-like power within him to simply keep moving forward. And this is emblematic of a kind of old English kind of Anglo-Saxon in particular heroism that Professor Tolkien was very familiar with, of course, in his studies of, in particular, Anglo-Saxon poetry and and old English poetry. There's a passage that I just discovered today. I'd never found out about this before, but I just discovered this today. In the old English poem, The Battle of Maldon, which was written, by all accounts, shortly after the real battle in the year 991, um, and there is a there is a phrase which reads, and again, I'm going to massacre the old English here, but I hope that you will put up with my terrible pronunciation. I'm unsure of that last word there. But in 1953, Professor Tolkien translated those lines as, quote, Will shall be sterner, heart the bolder, spirit the greater, as our strength lessons. This idea that as we are challenged in our capability, we become ourselves more elemental. We become ourselves more more necessary, more focused in our way. That seems to be what is happening to Sam here, that as our strength is challenged, as our strength, not just challenged, but as our strength is actually depleted, we become ourselves more resolute. And that this is indicative of a (laughs) A great heroism, but great in the sense of significant and virtuous rather than in the sense of magnificent or grand. Of course, Sam, neither magnificent nor grand in the traditional senses that we we, uh, associate with those words, but absolutely great and uh, great in the virtuous sense. So Sam here, once again, facing despair, once again, losing hope and having something within him be renewed. But this is not hope. Hope. This is not the hope of victory. This is not some bright star shining in the evening reminding him that the shadow is small and finite and can never conquer all light that there is. This isn't a reminder that he himself is in a great story. It isn't some intrusion of grace into his experience. This is something subtly different. This is closer, I would argue, to that defiance. Defiance, of course, is what happens when we go through despair and come out the other side. We know what is going to happen but we do it anyway. We do it insistently. We saw that with Aeomer during the Battle of the Palinor Fields. We arguably saw that with Pippin at the end of Book 5 of The Lord of the Rings as he's taking his stand before the Moranon, if you recall. And now, of course, we're seeing it in Sam too. The great of heart, the great of stature, those who possess a staunch heart, as the narrator credits Sam here, do not give up, even in in the teeth of despair. Instead, they become more resolute and they continue onward um let me see here as i catch up we are speculating about the sex lives of hobbits right now in the chat and that is a road down which i am not going to walk but yes <laughs> yes <laughs> um yes he starts saying i like that, that rosie is just one of the hobbits he thinks of here along with other friends and family yes no i like that a lot too yeah and Nikki says you think of what you'll miss you'll miss the most in the worst of times enter rosie cotton yeah, I completely agree too. So that takes us uh, through to the end of this first slide this evening, and we will move on to the taking of the road as the host of the West moves. This is the narrator giving us one of these, one of these uh, compositional shots where we are able to cut away from Frodo and Sam to the host of the West and and balance out both sides of this narrative in order to, as Marshall suggests, ratchet up the tension, the the dynamic link and and connection between these two halves of the story. Are we marching to doom? Oh, we are absolutely marching to doom, but we're still everyone is marching to doom we are going to falter not in a simple way we are going to falter not in a singular fashion but we are going to falter absolutely we are going to to witness the end of all things as frodo says right at the very end of this week's chapter i'm going back onto the road while the light lasts mr frodo he said trust the luck again it nearly failed us last time but it didn't quite a steady pace for a few more miles and then a rest He was taking a far greater risk than he knew, but Frodo was too much occupied with his burden and with the struggle in his mind to debate, and almost too hopeless to care. They climbed onto the causeway and trudged along, down the hard, cruel road that led to the Dark Tower itself, but their luck held, and for the rest of that day they met no living or moving thing, and when night fell they vanished into the darkness of Mordor. All the land now brooded as at the coming of a great storm, for the captains of the west had passed the crossroads and set flames in the deadly fields of Imlad Morgul. So the desperate journey went on as the ring went south and the banners of the kings rode north. For the hobbits each day, each mile was more bitter than the one before as their strength lessened and the land became more evil. They met no enemies by day. At times by night, as they cowered or drowsed uneasily in some hiding beside the road, they heard cries and the noise of many feet or the swift passing of some cruelly ridden steed. But far worse than all such perils was the ever-approaching threat that beat upon them as they went, the dreadful menace of the power that waited, brooding in deep thought and sleepless malice behind the dark veil about its throne. Nearer and nearer it drew, looming, blacker, like the oncoming of a wall of night at the last end of the world. There came at last a dreadful nightfall. And even as the captains of the West drew near to the end of the living lands, the two wanderers came to an hour of blank despair. Four days had passed since they had escaped from the orcs, but the time lay behind them like an ever-darkening dream. All this last day Frodo had not spoken and had walked half-bowed, often stumbling as if his eyes no longer saw the way before his feet. Sam guessed that among all their, plan, all their pains he bore the worst, the growing weight of the ring, a burden on the body and a torment to his mind. Anxiously, Sam had noted how his master's left hand would often be raised as if to ward off a blow or to screen his shrinking eyes from a dreadful eye that sought to look in them. And sometimes his right hand would creep to his breast, clutching, and then slowly, as the will recovered mastery, it would be withdrawn. This is incredibly potent, incredibly powerful, incredibly dramatic, and also very grounded and intimate and urgent prose. This is well one of those passages that demonstrates Tolkien's absolute mastery of his rhetorical level it would be very easy to let the ret- uh, let the the narrative voice at this point slip either Upward, and though, uh, and, and low, excuse me, so it was that Sam and Frodo crossed the great plains of Mordor seeking Mount Doom. We could elevate the language like that, or we could bring the language right down. Sam stumbled and muttered under his breath. Dust wreathed his boots. You know, we can bring it right down into Sam's experience, or we can modulate upward into the grandiose, into the mythic. Instead, we manage to mediate between those two extremes beautifully. We are never allowed to forget the intimate burden and suffering of these hobbits crossing this impossible, impassable, inhospitable plain but we're also never allowed to forget the mythic context in which this journey is taking place one of my favorites is the so the desperate journey went on as the ring went south and the banners of the kings rode north right this this reciprocal movement within and without mordor as aragorn and the host of the west rise, ride north from the crossroads up through ithilien toward morannon having of course uh, set flames in the deadly fields of imlad morgul remember when the host of the west arrives at minas morgul they decide that they can't take it they can't cross through the veil they can't cross through uh, to the Morgul Vale because their host will be driven mad by it. It's a very bad idea, in fact, to to lead troops through that valley. So instead they set fire to it and they just just burn it and ravage it instead before heading north to the Morannan. The dreadful menace of the power that waited, brooding in deep thought and sleepless malice behind the dark veil about its throne, nearer and nearer it drew, looming blacker like the oncoming of a wall of night at the last end of the world. I love the inversion that we get here of movement, right? We're we're not... Frodo and Sam are moving closer to, well, Mount Doom, but also just past Mount Doom, if you just kind of look a little to the right, you'll see barad You'll see the, the glint of the eye in the uppermost tower there, right? You'll, you'll see the actual holdfast of Sauron himself. They are moving closer. But in this instance, it doesn't feel as though they are moving. Instead, it feels as though the eye is drawing closer to them. That's the agency in uh, in that sentence there, right? That's the active voice in that sentence. Nearer and nearer it drew, looming blacker, like the oncoming of a wall of night at the last end of the world." Sam and Frodo aren't making progress. They're not feeling as though they are moving, even though they are trudging forward beneath this this great and terrible weight. They feel as though the world is moving around them, that the eye is drawing closer, that this great and terrible power, this capital P power, right? You'll note how we've modulated the, the, the tone of this piece enough that we're back into... Cap, uh, back into capital letter proper noun here, right? We're, the dreadful menace of the power, capital P, that waited, brooding in deep thought and sleepless mouths behind the dark veil about its throne, capital T. We're not using the actual titles of these things now. We're, we're back in this more elemental mode. There came at last a dreadful nightfall, and even as the captains of the West drew near to the end of the living land, so they are coming out of the north, uh, the northern fringes of Athelion, back out onto the plains of Daggerlad. Here, so we are. What is this? This is March twenty-second. This is. Um I guess this is a little earlier than that, right? This is uh right around the time that they depart from Athelion. So this so they are yes, uh they have moved north from the crossroads but they are about to to move forth into the uh into the the blasted land, the blasted plain of Daggerlad. there. Um let me see here. Uh Shane saying blank despair instead of black makes it worse than the darkness, it is just the background. That's that's very nice. Yes. Oh, and Angela is wearing her put a ring on it point north media t-shirt tonight i had forgotten those things existed angela that is fantastic i will uh try to remember to include a link to that in the uh in the show notes for this week's episode but i did dis i did design a t-shirt that has in tengwar script in a circle like the inscription upon the uh the inside edge of the one ring uh inscribed in tengwar is the the powerful and mythic phrase if you like it then you should have put a ring on it so yeah let me see here um Yes, Wilhelm Scream saying, interesting that they are still described as two wanderers when they are, as we the readers, are well aware of where they're heading. Perhaps this seems to be wanderers to the captains of the West. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yes. I'm just now thinking that through, yeah, because the opposition there, you're right, does seem to suggest that that is, that is an, uh, an implicit association that is being made there. There came at last a dreadful nightfall, and even as the captains of the West drew near to the end of the living lands, the two wanderers came to an hour of blank despair. I guess one of the things that we need to be careful of here is that even as they are taking the road, right? The road does not run directly to to Mount Doom at this point. It is still crisscrossing the land of of Mordor here and they themselves are not taking the direct road. They're taking the road when they can, but they're also leaving the road at night in order to uh to find some uh to find some um shelter from from the forces that are still moving within Mordor, though not as many as there used to be. Yeah, Mel saying I think it makes them seem more vulnerable, hopeless, nameless. That I think is is a very good observation now, right? Rendering them as wanderers removes not just agency but almost identity from them. What are they doing? Like even at this point, the fact that they are Frodo and Sam is less important than they are two hobbits engaged to two beings, two creatures engaged in a great and and critical quest, but if you remove even that from them, then they are diminished still further. That, I like. Wanderers roots them better in this context of an inhospitable and uncaring landscape in a way that two hobbits or, you know, whatever would not. Whereas removing that blank despair or or juxtaposing that blank despair with the action and agency of what is happening outside of, of the borders of Mordor, right, with the captains of the West riding north, with the king's banners going north. That is all very vibrant and very energetic and very present, whereas Frodo and Sam are... Well, they're they're losing themselves in this moment. Uh, let me see if I've got the, the quote here. He was taking a far greater risk than you, but Frodo was too much occupied with his burden with the struggle in his mind to debate and almost too hopeless to care. Of course, almost too hopeless to care. Frodo has long since given up on the hope of returning, but now he is almost without hope that they will ever accomplish their task anyway. Um, I guess it's not on this slide. It's on maybe the next slide that we will catch up with. There's a particular thought that I wanted to connect back to that idea of... Uh, that anonymization of Frodo and Sam, that that dehumanization, that that depersonification of Frodo and Sam as they cross here. We'll circle back around to that in just a moment. Yes, as Seastar is saying, uh, I like that the story shrinks to their experience though compared to the previous book of Return of the King. Yeah, we're... We're gesturing outward, but we're not exploring that space. We don't indulge. And this is why, of course, we split uh, the third volume of The Lord of the Rings into these two books and, and, and bifurcate our viewpoint so powerfully here is that, yes, all of that action is still occurring. That's why we get reference to the king's banners and to the the um, the captains of the West heading north toward Morannon even as the hobbits head south, right? We get that lovely juxtaposition, that that, that contrast there, that, that it's not that either is heading out of danger. You'll note there the use of north and south kind of inverting our usual expectation of east and west, right? West is always good, east is always bad. Well, this is north and south. This is neither good nor bad, or... I suppose it's more accurate to say that neither is better or worse than the other. But yes, yeah, good. OK, let's uh, keep pushing on because we've still got, uh, <laughs> still got a lot to cover. So this is, as I say, um, this is, as I say, the night of March the 22nd, the day before the host finally leaves Athelion tomorrow from our vantage point here on uh, on March the 23rd. Uh, Aragorn is going to dismiss those men of his host who are intimidated and, and frightened and who do not want to continue on toward Morannon. Remember, he'll give them the opportunity to, to keep their honor and to go instead to Kyrandros, which we're going to see uh, in next week's reading. In fact, we're going to, or we're not going to see, but we're going to be nearby in next week's reading. So that will happen tomorrow from this perspective. And right now, on the night of March 22nd, Lothlorien, far to the north, is falling under the blades of the orcs for the third time. The third great great. great uh, orcish assault on Lothlorien. Uh, These are orcs of the Misty Mountains, I should say. The third great orc assault on Lothlorien is beginning this evening, so things are pretty dire indeed, no matter where you turn. Let's move into the casting aside of our belongings. Frodo looked again toward the mountain. No, he said, we shan't need much on that road, and at its end, nothing. Picking up his orc shield, he flung it away and threw his helmet after it. Then pulling off the grey cloak, he undid the heavy belt and let it fall to the ground and the sheathed sword with it. The shreds of the black cloak he tore off and scattered. There! I'll be an orc no more, he cried, and I'll bear no weapon, fair or foul. Let them take me if they will. Sam did likewise and put aside his orc gear, and he took out all the things in his pack. Somehow, each of them had become dear to him, if only because he had borne them so far with so much toil. Hardest of all to part with was his cooking gear. Tears welled in his eyes at the thought of casting it away. Do you remember that bit of rabbit, Mr. Frodo, he said, and our place under the warm bank in Captain Faramir's country the day I saw an elephant. No, I'm afraid not, Sam, said Frodo. At least, I know that such things happened, but I cannot see them. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon or star are left to me. I am naked in the dark, Sam, and there is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes, and all else fades. Sam went to him and kissed his hand. And the sooner we're rid of it, the sooner to rest, he said haltingly, finding no better words to say. Talking won't mend nothing, he muttered to himself as he gathered up all the things they had chosen to cast away. He was not willing to leave them lying open in the wilderness for any eyes to see. Stinker picked up that orc shirt seemingly, and he isn't going to add a sword to it. His hands are bad enough when empty, and he isn't going to mess with my pans. With that, he carried all the gear away to one of the many gaping fissures that scored the land and threw them in. The clatter of his precious pans as they fell down into the dark was like a death knell to his heart. He came back to Frodo, and then of his Elven rope he cut a short piece to serve his master as a girdle and bind the grey cloak close about his waist. The rest he carefully coiled and put back in his pack. Beside that, he kept only the remnants of their waybread and the water bottle and Sting still hanging by his belt and hidden away in a pocket of his tunic next to his breast, the file of Galadriel and the little box that she gave him for his own. Remember that little box? It heartens me to think of Sam still carrying that uh, that soil of Lothlorien with him here in Mordor. It's, uh, it's pretty powerful. It's pretty lovely. Yes, um... Yeah, Shane's saying, I did not realize it before, but he cut the rope he liked so much. Yes, though he did keep both parts of it and put them to good use. I don't think that he would have uh, begrudged the cutting of the rope here in this this one instance to uh, to bind Frodo's uh, cloak around him and to keep him warm against the cold. But yes, yeah. Um, yes, Angela quoting the little book she gave him as his own. No, I know. This is incredibly powerful. This is, uh, yeah, this is... <sighs> we have become accustomed to Sam in the way that Sam has become accustomed to his belongings. I suppose that's a very trivial and almost impersonal way of putting it. But when we think about that connection there, somehow each of them had become dear to him, if only because he had borne them so far with so much toil. Hardest of all it was to part with his cooking gear, tears welled in his eyes at the thought of casting it away. This long association and the the intimacy of of perils overcome, of challenges faced and, and triumphed against, I suppose, and not triumphed against in the sense of great victory, of course, the Hobbits, sadly, since leaving the Shire, let alone leaving Rivendell, have had few great victories, but they have endured. They have kept the pace and they have kept to the road. But here we are, still approaching the end of all things. We shan't need much on the road, says Frodo, and at its end, nothing. There I'll be an orc no more, he cried, and I'll bear no weapon, fair or foul. Let them take me if they will. Frodo here, hopeless now to the point, or partly hopeless, partly caught in the thrall of the ring, partly overwhelmed by the pressure and the burden that is upon him. Now almost rejecting the possibility of action. He'll bear no weapon, fair or foul. Sam has sting right there. It's not like Sam wouldn't return the blade to him. But even the thought of taking action now is too much for Frodo to bear. He is slipping into this passivity. He is slipping into the now. Remember we had that line about uh, the time before stretching out behind them, darkening, right? This is exactly what we talked about, that in order to feel either hope or despair, you have to have a sense of your place in the chronology, you have to have a sense of both the past and the future. You have to be able to infer from the events of the past what will happen next. If you believe that you know that beyond a doubt, then you can despair. Or if you are valiant, if you are staunch of heart, you can sometimes push through despair into defiance. Otherwise, you still have hope. But even hope is predicated on a knowledge of what has gone before and a belief in what may come next. Frodo is losing even that. Time is blurring away from him now, as he acknowledges here. Tears welled in his eyes at the thought of casting it away, right? So Sam and his pots and pans, I mean, yes, of course. It's not just that he has carried these things for such a long distance. It's that pots and pans are to Sam, as the memory of pots and pans were to Bilbo so very long ago in the pages of The Hobbit, emblematic of comfort. They are emblematic of home, lembas and and elven cloaks and elven rope these things are comforts even to sam the file of galadriel and the little box that she gave him for his very own these things are comforts for sam now but they are not the comforts of home they are i mean in their way as unfamiliar to sam as alien to sam as the the blasted plains of Mordor. this is not where sam belongs this is not where a sam belongs this is not where frodo belongs either So setting aside these tokens, not just of home, but of comfort. And you'll remember, again, long, long ago, back when we were discussing... um the uh the hobbits arrival at uh, Crick Hollow, all the way back in, in the pages of the Fellowship of the Ring. When they get to Crick Hollow and they sing the bath song, right? Sing Hey for a bath at the close of the day. We talked at that point about how comfort is the most hobbitish virtue, that that elves can celebrate the natural world, and that men can celebrate utility and function, and that dwarves can celebrate art and 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 beauty and and craftsmanship, if you like, but hobbits elevate everything in their lives to their ultimate function, and that is to say the provision of. Comfort. That is what hobbits are about. This is why Bilbo is thinking of bacon and eggs and the, the, the kettle beginning to whistle back in Bag End all the way through to the end of The Hobbit. That is what gives him comfort in times of, of strife and hardship. And Sam here, well, he has the physical tokens far worse than Bilbo, who, of course, famously runs out without so much as a handkerchief. Sam's facing something far worse than that. He has the pans that he has carried from Bag End, and now he has to cast them aside that's obviously a heartbreaking thing for him and i think a heartbreaking thing for us too as we're as we're reading through these passages do you remember that bit of rabbit mr frodo he said in our place under the warm bank in captain faramir's country the day i saw an elephant Sam Gamgee, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, that is Sam Gamgee right there. Do you remember that bit of rabbit? It has been so long now since they have had fresh food, since they have had good and wholesome food. I mean, yes, the, the Lembus, the Elven waybread bread is good and wholesome food. It is capital G and capital W, good and wholesome food, but it isn't hobbit food now. A coney. Stripped and skinned and, and roasted over an open flame. That's that's good eating for a hobbit, right? All you need is some uh, all you need is some potatoes to make that just perfect. So he remembers that and he remembers our place under the warm bank in Captain Faramir's country the day I saw an elephant, remember, before the the battle broke out there, before they uh, went to Henneth and Unbeck in, in Ithilien. And Frodo says, no, no, I'm afraid not, Sam. At least I know that such things happened but I cannot see them. Do I remember those things? Yes, yes. I remember that we ate a rabbit. I remember that you saw an elephant. I remember there was a fight. I remember Faramir. Like, I remember these things as abstracts, but I cannot picture them. I am disassociated from the actual memory of these things. I still have the fact of these things, but I do not have the experience of these things anymore. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon or star are left to me. All these things have been taken away from him. The past has been taken away from him. His experience, his, his continuing experience of Frodoness, is gone now. All he is now is in the present. All he is now is naked in the dark, and there is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes, and all else fades." The past has been taken from Frodo. The future is now impossible for him. All there is, naked in the dark, is the wheel of fire. This is all that he can see. This. Uh, let's talk a little about the wheel of fire, of course, because this is the um, this is the second of three references to the wheel of fire. There, this phrase occurs in the Lord of the Rings only three times. The first was in last week's reading in The Land of Shadow, the second chapter of book six, uh, in which Frodo says, well, no, not much Sam Frodo side excuse me, that's a way beyond the mountains. We're going east, not west, and I'm so tired and the ring is so heavy, Sam, and I begin to see it in my mind all the time like a great wheel of fire. That is when the concept of the wheel of fire is introduced to us in last week's reading. Now we get this reference. I am naked in the dark, Sam, and there is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes and all else fades. And then at the end of this chapter, quote, Then suddenly, as before, under the eaves of the Emon Mule, Sam saw these two rivals with another vision, a crouching shape scarcely more than the shadow of a living thing, a creature now wholly ruined and defeated, yet filled with the hideous lust and rage, and before it stood stern, untouchable now by pity, a figure robed in white, but at its breast it held a wheel of fire. That is the third reference to the wheel of fire in the the span of this book. So in the last chapter, and now twice in this chapter, twice in Frodo's attributed dialogue, and once in... Well the narrative voice, but it's it's in very closely in Sam's POV there. Um So the Wheel of Fire symbolism associated with the ring is fascinating. It is fascinating that it doesn't occur anywhere else. It is not a symbol of Sauron. It is not a symbol of the Dark Power or the Dark Tower. It is not a symbol, it would seem, of evil. It is a symbol particularly of the ring itself. This is not an unprecedented symbol, of course. This is not, as I mentioned last time, this is not a symbol that is is free from uh from mythical and metaphorical association the wheel of fire evokes um the myth of of ixion who is um, just just a both terrible and tragic character if you go and read your greek mythology um the first person ever to slay a kinsman in greek myth in most versions of his myth then after being invited to olympus he gets the hots for hera uh Zeus, of course, is unhappy about this and binds him to a wheel of fire. Originally, as the sun, right? This is one of these explanatory myths that we've talked about back in the origins of of, uh, of our discussions of, of Professor Tolkien's world building and his own uh, mythopoeic tendency here. This is one of the explanations for the sun itself is uh, is Ixion bound to the wheel of fire. But later versions of the myth will reconcile this and will bind him instead in Tartarus. Aristotle interestingly took the idea of the wheel of fire this 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 cyclical punishment and and, and torment right he took this idea from the uh, the myth of Ixion and rendered it in more narratively applicable and urgent terms Aristotle when he was writing about tragedy um I want to say that this is in fact in Poetics, but now I'm realizing that it's been a while since I've read Poetics and they're all kind of blurring together. I think it's in Poetics, you guys. But anyway, when when Aristotle is talking about tragedy, he uses the wheel of fire as a metaphor for the suffering and torment that will befall a tragic character because of his or her own unique flaw. Because of that hamarsha, that quality that that makes greatness impossible for this particular character and leads to their downfall, to, to Othello's jealousy for example right these are the uh these are the qualities which compromise an otherwise great figure that is what tightens the the vice grip around narratively speaking tightens the vice grip around the tragic hero is his flaw is his Hamarsha, and that Hamarsha dooms him to an endless cycle of suffering and of torment on the wheel of fire so that is how the wheel of fire kind of of entered Um, entered narrative discussions and our understanding of stories and storytelling, making it all the way, of course, to King Lear, who uses Wheel of Fire as he's describing his own ongoing suffering and torment. In fact, I think, did I pull the... uh... Did I pull the quote here? I did pull the quote here. Excellent. This is uh, King Lear from Act 4, Scene 7. Uh, Cordelia comes, uh, at the the urging of the Doctor, Cordelia comes to inquire how the king is doing. Um, And Lear replies, uh, You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead again that idea of being bound to the wheel of fire this ongoing cyclical torment this this turning of of awful things um yes yes um oh i'm just now wondering has angela mentioned in the chat uh because wheel of fire is also a very good episode of babylon 5 angela as i'm sure you recall it's uh it's very close to the end of season five it's episode 19 of season five episode eight no i think episode 19 of season five of babylon five is entitled wheel of fire for exactly this reason right making not the first and not the last connection between the brilliant character of Londo malari and uh, king lear himself of course so uh yeah Babylon five gets real good at the end of its fifth season you guys so yeah wheel of fire is, a, is an excellent excellent episode of that show so All of that is to say that the wheel of fire here symbolizing this ongoing torment, Tolkien is, as he so rarely does, borrowing a, well, okay, not wholesale borrowing, right? Let's forget everything that we've just discussed and focus on the symbol of the wheel of fire, this ring of fire echoing the uh, fiery inscription within the ring, of course, echoing the forging of the ring, echoing, uh, uh, foreshadowing, I should say, the ultimate destruction of the ring in the pages to come. It's a powerful symbol in and of itself, but the association back to Greek myth, back to Aristotelian tragedy, back to the works of Shakespeare, not the first reference to Shakespeare that we've had in the context of The Lord of the Rings, of course, though mostly we're focused on Macbeth rather than King Lear. And if you guys are interested in some more Shakespeare discussion, hey, head on over to pointnorthmedia.com, click the classes button, and register now for The Globe's Bard, my upcoming Shakespeare class, which is going to run for four weeks through the month of July. There's a little plug in the middle of the show for you. That's going to be a ton of fun. If you're at all interested in Shakespeare, definitely go check that out because it is going to be an absolute blast. I am preparing feverishly for that class as we speak. uh, I'm very, very excited about it. Anyway, this is a powerful symbol in and of itself but yes also a a powerful symbol of this ongoing suffering and the burden that Frodo is now is now feeling yeah um Angela's also recommending that uh, Babylon 5 is now on Amazon Prime which is fantastic you can go and check out uh, all the Babylon 5 over there yeah just just lovely yes um yeah, Shane saying hamarsha is also the word that is translated as sin in the New Testament. Yes, yes, um, it is. It is delineated more clearly if you if you read your, your your Aristotle. It is delineated more clearly there. It is a sin, right? Your hamarsha is is a sin, but it is more than just ah. Uh, It is more than just a shortcoming. It is more than just a vice. It is more than just a sin. In true Aristotelian tragedy, the tragic hero is a great man. The tragic hero is a hero, right? It it is hero modified by the word tragic he's not a different kind of figure. He is a great hero who is brought short by that one sin, right? It is, in Othello's case, the sin of jealousy. It is the sin of pride. It is the sin of envy. It is the sin of gluttony, right? You can find the sin of wrath, certainly. We can find examples of that all over the place, particularly through, uh, through Shakespeare's period. Um. But yes, it is that sin that, that cracks the hero to his core and gives you the inversion of the usual hero story where the hero rises and overcomes. Here in, in true Aristotelian tragedy, the hero falls and is broken, is, is riven to his core by that, that crack in his nature. Yeah, um, yeah. no, I know. I, I really wanted to study King Lear some more, I have to admit, yeah. Um, Seastar saying, oh, Tolkien and Shakespeare, when someone told me Caliban was reminiscent of Gollum, it messed up my life for too long. You know, that would be a really interesting, that would be a really interesting discussion. We, we could do a one-shot discussion after The Lord of the Rings, looking at major influences on Professor Tolkien's work and looking in, I mean, we'd have to look at the, the Poetic Edda. We'd have, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we could look at that would be really interesting in terms of framing out the elemental and archetypal parts of Tolkien's work. I think that could be a really good, uh, that could be a really good discussion. Okay, let's... Um, Let's keep pushing onward here. Is that everything that I wanted to discuss on this, this brilliant and beautiful slide? Um, yes, I think so. Okay, we're good. We're good for now. Uh, so Sam wrapping himself, bearing still the, the lembas and the water bottle and the elven rope and the cloak, of course, and the file of Galadriel still tucked away next to his breast. Because where else would you keep the file of Galadriel and the little bottle of soil that she gave him for his very own? Let's keep pushing onward to Sam's conversation with himself. At their last halt he sank down and said, I'm thirsty, Sam, and did not speak again. Sam gave him a mouthful of water, only one more mouthful remained. He went without himself, and now as once more the night of Mordor closed over them, though all his thoughts, through all his thoughts there came the memory of water, and every brook or stream or fount that he had ever seen under green willow shades or twinkling in the sun danced and rippled for his torment behind the blindness of his eyes. He felt the cool mud about his toes as he paddled in the pool at Bywater with Jolly Cotton and Tom and Nibs and their sister Rosie. That was years ago, he sighed, and far away. The way back, if there is one, goes past the mountain. He could not sleep, and he held a debate with himself. Well, come now. We've done better than you hoped, he said sturdily. Began well, anyway. I reckon we crossed half the distance before we stopped. One more day'll do it. And Then he paused. Don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee, came an, am- an answer in his own voice. He won't go another day like that if he moves at all. And you can't go on longer, giving him all the water and most of the food. I can go on a good way, though, and I will. Where to? To the mountain, of course. And what then, Sam Gamgee? What then? When you get there, what are you going to do? He won't be able to do anything for himself. To his dismay, Sam realized he had not got an answer to this. He had no clear idea at all. Frodo had not spoken much, of him, much to him of his errand, and Sam only knew vaguely that the, that the ring had somehow to be put into the fire. The cracks of doom, he muttered, the old name rising to his mind. Well, if Master knows how to find them, I don't. There you are, came the answer. It's all quite useless, he said to so himself. You're the fool going on hoping and toiling. You should have lain down and gone to sleep together days ago if you hadn't been so dogged. But you will die just the same, or worse. You might as well lie down now and give it up. You'll never get to the top anyway. I'll get there if I leave everything but my bones behind, said Sam, and I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and heart, so stop arguing. At that moment, Sam felt a tremor in the ground beneath him, and he heard or sensed a deep remote rumble as of thunder imprisoned under the earth. There was a brief red flame that flickered under the, under the clouds and died away. The mountain, too, slept uneasily. <sighs> I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and my heart this conversation with sam is fascinating nikki getting right to it of course nikki asking can the rings influence be influencing sam's thoughts here well yes possibly possibly is this the ring is this some fell power here's what we know for sure this is not sam Gamgee. we know that this is not sam Gamgee, or at least we can be pretty sure that this is not sam Gamgee. for well three reasons one of which is so obvious that it barely needs noting Sam Gamgee would never argue in favor of laying down to die. He would never argue in favor of abandoning his duty to his master. Sam himself alone in the wilderness, right? Had Frodo died back at Carath Ungol, Sam might now, at the end of all things, well, even then, no, even then, I can't think of Sam Gamgee. I think that he would continue onward, bound by loyalty to his master, as we discussed at the, end of, uh, at the end of the last episode of There and Back Again. I think that Sam would persevere regardless. So that is obviously the first objection to this being a genuine conflict within Sam. There are two others. The first is the note of the voice. Don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee came an answer in his own voice. That externalization, it came in his own voice, yes, but it is not his own voice. It is not a thought within him. It is not something which is true to Sam. It is not Sam replying to himself or another side of Sam replying to himself. This is closer to the Golem-Smeagol-Slinker-Stinker distinction that we've seen before, right? Those conversations that we had back in The Two Towers, it is closer to that than it is a genuine internal uh, internal duologue, I suppose. But it is still distinct. Don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee came and answer in his own voice. is very different from he answered himself or... Came a response, you know. There's these voices which have appeared to Sam and spoken to Sam across great distances or from unknowable sources in the past. I take that recognition of externalization, but still imitation came an answer in his own voice to indicate that. Well, no, this is not his own voice. This is something distinct from his, or, or rather, this is his own voice. It sounds like his voice, but it is not him. If that fine distinction makes sense. The most powerful proof, though, that this is an external power turning its attention to Sam, either explicitly turning its attention to Sam or catching Sam in its area of effect, I suppose, comes right there at the end. I'll get there if I leave everything but my bones behind, said Sam, and I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and heart, so stop arguing. On that exclamation point, at that moment, Sam felt a tremor in the ground beneath him and he heard or sensed a deep remote rumble as of thunder imprisoned under the earth. There was a brief red flame that flickered under the clouds and died away. The mountain, too, slept uneasily. That is awfully coincidental if that should happen at exactly the moment that Sam rejects the influence of whatever is shrouding him. Is it the ring? No, I don't think it's the ring. I think that Sam has broken the domination of the ring over his spirit once and for all. I think that his final rejection of the ring was sufficient and certainly this is not how the ring was speaking to sam previously this this dialogue this this duologue this conversation between two parties this is not generally speaking how the ring weaves its influence this is not generally speaking how the ring seeks to dominate those wills which are lesser than its own brackets pretty much every single will in fact rather the ring will whisper to you it will whisper insidiously to you take the ring take me up own me use me claim me be Samwise the strong hero of the age turn all of mordor into a garden you know the the garden swollen to a realm remember when sam had that vision that experience that is how the ring throughout the pages of the lord of the rings manifests its influence we get that from sam we get that from boromir we get implications of that with galadriel with faramir right that is how the ring does what it does this is something different this, I think, is not the influence of the ring, and is not the conscious influence of Sauron or of Baradur or of the Shadow or of you know any kind of of specific force arrayed against Frodo and Sam or the host of the West or just you know people of good spirit and good nature. I suppose this isn't a power that is being turned against them. I read this as. A consequence of Mordor, a consequence of this this blasted plain here, and we've seen things like this before. You'll remember way back on the western edges of the Misty Mountains before we go into Moria as we're coming through uh, as we're coming through holland a land which remembers the elves a land which is still wholesome though the elves have long since departed right we can uh, we can think of uh, of um, the ancient watchtowers along the road between Bree and rivendell and we can think of the the spirits of the ancient wars that were fought there we can think certainly of of Khazad-dum and of moria we can think of Lothlorien and, and the, the way that the presence of elves has been imbued into into that space and of course the power of the shire the power of rivendell even to a certain extent, I think you can probably argue the power of, of Minas Tirith and the power of, of power of Athelion, certainly, right? Athelion is still, even though it has been conquered, kind of, it has been claimed, it has been, has been invaded by the, the host of Mordor, it isn't quite silenced yet. There is still good there because good lived there for so long. This hopelessness seems to me to be a consequence of Mordor. This is what mortar does to the spirits of those who, who live within it. Note what it is what it is arguing here. I can go on a good way. So it argues first. He won't go on another day like that if he moves at all. And you can't go on much longer giving him all the water and most of the food. Sam responds with his usual defiance. I can go on a good way, though, and I will. We're to? to the mountain, of course. But what then, Sam Gamgee? What then? When you get there, what are you going to do? He won't be able to do anything for himself. It is hopeless. There is literally no hope. Frodo is not going to do the thing that he needs to do. And also, by the way, the cracks of doom are in the mountain. But you know it's a mountain, right? Like, you know it's a giant volcano right here in the middle of Mordor. How are you going to find the place where you have to be? How are you going to find the place where the ring can be destroyed? And then are you going to destroy the ring? Is Frodo going to destroy the ring? He won't be able to do anything for himself. Then Sam continues. The cracks of Doom, will, if Master knows how to find them, I don't. There you are, came the answer. It's all quite useless. He said so himself. There's also something there. It's all quite useless. It's all quite useless, does not feel to me like a thing that Samwise Gamgee would say. It feels as though that's, well, it may sound like his voice, but it is not quite his voice. It's all quite useless. He said to himself, you're the fool going on hoping and toiling. You could have have laid down and gone to sleep together days ago if you hadn't been so dogged. Gone to sleep together. Not abandoning your master, not failing in your quest. Sam, you could have the thing that you wanted. You could give Frodo final comfort and then rest. Rest, my lad. But Sam still continues to fight, and we push onward nonetheless. Um,. I guess we should talk about uh, we should talk about the cracks of doom, I suppose, since this is the first time in a good long while that they have been referenced here. Let's uh, acknowledge the cracks of doom, says Sam. I mentioned this last time um, during, during our discussion, that sometimes cracks of doom, sometimes crack of doom, sometimes the singular, sometimes the plural. Let's check the terminology. The singular crack of doom, that phrase, capital C, capital D, crack of doom, is used only three times in the entire book. It is used by Sam in The Choices of Master Samwise, the last chapter. Of book four, that's the last part of the two towers. It is used by the narrator, mere moments ago. Here we go, and by Sam again in next week's reading, The Field of Cormelin, in uh, in uh, chapter four of, of book six. We'll get to that then. So, um, we've got oh, mere moments ago, I didn't pull it out actually, that's too bad. But yes, so we, we get it uh, three times twice by Sam in attributed dialogue, and once by the narrator when we're in Sam's POV. That is crack of doom, singular, the plural cracks of doom five times, only appears five times. Together, these combined uh, phrases appear only eight times in The Lord of the Rings, um, or, or eight times in the in the prose of The Lord of the Rings. Cracks of Doom does appear once more in the appendices, but the plural Cracks of Doom is used five times by Gandalf in Shadows of the Past. Uh, that's the second chapter of the first book of The Lord of the Rings. That's the big conversation with Frodo, and later, in fact, in the same scene by the narrator, again in Gandalf's POV. So Gandalf effectively uses it twice in that chapter. By Gandalf again in the following chapter through his company, the third chapter of the first book of the lord of the rings then by sam in the breaking of the fellowship that is the 10th chapter of book two that's right there at the end of uh at the end of the fellowship of the ring and then again by sam right here in this slide so crack of doom three times cracks of doom five times take your pick i have tried to distill out a consistency between the two and there just isn't one There just well there just isn't one i should say um There is. There is, though, is the thing. There is a consistency, and it's a slightly treacherous one. Um, We do generally refer to the cracks of Doom as the place. And the crack of Doom is used more representatively in the original sense of the crack of doom, right? The the the, um, the the phrase, the crack of doom, which I have now said so many times that it has been robbed of all meaning and, and now just sounds like gibberish. But the crack of doom is actually a Christian idea. It is a Christian metaphor associated with Judgment Day, right? The crack of doom is the sound of thunder at Judgment Day. That is the the actual origin of that crack in the traditional thunder and lightning sense. And doom, of course, being used in that archaic sense. That is the doom that we must deem from Elrond back in the Council of Elrond, right? Doom meaning Judgment Judgment. the crack of doom is the 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 audible herald of judgment day in in christian theology and that is clearly something that that tolkien is referencing here so when we talk about the crack of doom we are talking about the place yes but we are also talking about the moment we are also talking about the event in a way that we are not so much when we talk about cracks of doom more on that as we move ever onward um <laughs> Wilhelm scream, perhaps they're merely referring to the Irish pub, the Crackadoon. Yeah, no, I've, I've had some good nights in the Crackadoon, let me tell you, the, you gotta love the Crack. Uh, <laughs> Marshall's saying, the geography of Middle-earth makes absolutely zero sense, but it's also odd that a is an active volcano in the middle of a desert plain that is nonetheless surrounded by an encircling mountain range that is either not volcanic at all or at least dormant. It absolutely is. You're right, the geography of Tolkien's world, uh, the, the, the mm, I want to be careful about this, the physical geography of Tolkien's world makes no sense it, it is not consistent with our understanding of natural geography it, it doesn't obey any of the laws the mountain ranges in particular are just crazy i have no idea how these mountain ranges could be formed except by magic let's just say magic let's say magic did it i suppose a wizard did it i suppose is my answer to to that particular challenge here in other ways, Tolkien's uh, cartography, his, his map making, and his dedication to the landscape of Middle Earth is really quite sophisticated and beautiful. When we're looking in particular at the evolution of languages, of course languages, but of, of cultures and of national boundaries and of identities and things like that, I think Tolkien is on much firmer footing. But yes, Professor Tolkien, for all his many great gifts, was not a, a geographer or a geologist. So I'm afraid that the, uh, the physical maps make make perilously little sense if you're looking at them as modern maps but yeah yeah um good good yeah no uh, marshall's pointing out that I, I feel i read an article in which it's pointed out that the tectonic plates weren't discovered until after tolkien wrote the books that is true I, I believe at least that is true marshall i have a similar memory of reading an assertion to that effect but while that while the underlying mechanism for mountain ranges was not completely understood in tolkien's time they still understood like how mountain ranges looked in the real world and the fact that there isn't anything in the real world that looks like you know Mordor this this perfect you know three-sided rectangle of mountains is with an active volcano right in the middle yeah it's we've just kind of got to let it uh oh stars linking out to the to the link there it is good excellent Tolkien's map and the messed up mountains of middle earth from tor.com from uh from August of 2017 excellent thank you (laughs) that I think is the one that I read yes a long time ago that's that's perfect yeah uh let me see here as I scroll back um Yes, yes. Uh, Marshall saying, too, the fact that it's referred to in the plural implies that Mount Doom contains multiple active volcanic fissures hammering home the point that it is an extremely active volcano. Uh, Only very recently, though, right? For the longest period, Orodruin has been dormant. In fact, it has only been recently that that signs of life have returned to, to Mount Doom. But yeah, yeah, good. Artful Fox says, would be a major bummer if you tossed the ring in and it just landed on a rock before actually falling into the fire. Yeah, that would be a that would be a very modern, like uh that would be a, a postmodern twist, in fact, I suppose, on the on the revolution. Yeah, yeah, good. All right, let's uh let's keep pushing onward here. So that takes us through the crack of Doom and of course Sam's argument with himself. I should say, to the echo here of Smeagol and Gollum the echo here of Slinker and Stinker is by no means accidental is by no means inadvertent I don't believe that it's a genuine echo I don't believe that there are two sides to Sam's personality that, that Sam's personality in this dire circumstance has been bifurcated by stress and by conflict and now he is literally arguing with himself that doesn't sit well with me at all that that actually stands in opposition to Sam's staunch heart and and growing strength and and boldness as he moves forward here through Mordor but I do like very much the idea of the influence of Mordor itself as distinct from the influence of Sauron or the influence of the Ring. This feels to me, this is what happens to you when you are in a place populated by despair, that is populated by hopelessness. That that feels very naturalistic to me. That feels very authentic and convincing and compelling to me. But we must also recognize, of course, the echo of Gollum and Smeagol. We must recognize the the echo of Slinker and Stinker here because we are just about to catch up with Gollum in just a couple slides' time. And I'm just now realizing that we're going to have to pick up the pace here if we're actually going to make it all the way to the end. Now for it! Now for the last gasp! said Sam as he struggled to his feet. He bent over Frodo, rousing him gently. Frodo groaned, but with a great effort of will he staggered up and then he fell on his knees again. He raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above him and then pitifully he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. As Frodo clung about his back, arms loosely about his neck, legs clasped firmly under his arms, Sam staggered to his feet and then to his amazement, he felt the burden light. He had feared that he would have barely—he had barely strength to lift his master alone, and beyond that he expected to share in the dreadful, dragging weight of the accursed ring. But it was not so. Whether because Frodo was so worn by his long pains, wound of knife and venomous sting and sorrow, fear and homeless wandering, or because some gift of final strength was given to him, Sam lifted Frodo with no more difficulty than as if he were carrying a hobbit child piggyback in some romp on the lawns or hayfields of the Shire. He took a deep breath and started off. They had reached the mountain's foot on its northern side, and a little to the westward. There its long grey slopes through Broken were not sheer. Frodo did not speak, and so Sam struggled on as best he could, having no guidance but the will to climb as high as might be before his strength gave out and his will broke. On he toiled, up and up, turning this way and that to lessen the slope, often stumbling forward, and at the last crawling like a snail with a heavy burden on its back. When his will could drive him no further and his limbs gave way, he stopped and laid his master down gently. Frodo opened his eyes and drew a breath. It was easier to breathe up here above the reeks that coiled and drifted down below. "'Thank you, Sam,' he said in a cracked whisper. "'How far is there to go?' "'I don't know,' said Sam. "'Cause I don't know where we're going.' Yes, Nikki saying, and Nikki quoting, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. One of my favorite lines from the movie clearly defines who Sam is. And Seastar saying, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. One of the most haunting lines in the film as well. Uh, the film for me, I'm glad it's in the book too. Yeah, this is... This is stunning. Yes, uh, Marshall saying, God, Frodo trying with his last effort to crawl up is devastating. I completely agree. That is one of the most heartbreaking moments. He bent over Frodo, rousing him gently. Frodo groaned with a great effort of will. He staggered up, then he fell on his knees again. He raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above him. And then pitifully, he began to crawl forward on his hands. Frodo has not given up. Frodo has not passed out. Sam is not taking up the slack in the absence of Frodo's will. I mean... He's kind of taking up the slack in the absence of Frodo's capability, but Frodo is still moving forward, crawling on hands and accursed knees through the dust and the dirt of Mordor here. But Sam still has a greater measure of strength. He looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. Then he summons him forth, right? Look at the energy here. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go then when he picks Frodo up when he has Frodo on his back right uh piggyback is the archaic form of piggyback of course which is how we would refer to that in the the, the modern world so he has Frodo on his back and he's fearful thinking there's no way I can carry this weight I have felt the burden of the ring I know what that thing wait but he doesn't feel the weight of the ring because he is not bearing the ring this is I don't know, uh, perilously close to one of those conversations about about uh, who can wield Mjolnir, right? If you put Mjolnir in an elevator and the elevator goes up, is the elevator worthy? Well, the elevator isn't wielding Mjolnir, but... Sam is not bearing the ring. Frodo is still bearing the weight of the ring, and the weight of the ring, of course, not a physical weight. The ring is not getting actually heavier as they approach Mount Doom, but it is getting psychologically heavier. It is getting spiritually heavier. It is getting emotionally heavier. It is it is weighing on Frodo in every way, including the physical, despite the fact that its, it's physical weight has not been increased. Sam here able to carry Frodo with relative ease, so he takes his breath and he starts off, so he pushes ever upward, right? Zigzagging across the flank of the mountain like he's playing Skyrim and trying to cheat his way up a slope. That's just a relatively obscure video game reference, I suppose. I don't know how many of you have played Skyrim. I'm sure that everyone who has played Skyrim has tried to Skyrim their way up a uh, up a slope to try and get where you should not be, or try and just shortcut the path that you're supposed to take. Uh, so he's zigzagging up the bank here to, to climb the mountain, and keeps going on he toiled, up and up, turning this way and that to lessen the slope, often stumbling forward at the last, crawling like a snail with a heavy burden on his back. Now he is crawling. Now the weight of Frodo is significant. The weight that seemed so inconsequential mere moments ago with Frodo being diminished by long pain wound of knife and venomous sting sorrow fear and homeless wandering right all of these things have have lessened Frodo's weight and lessened his his presence in the world lessened his physical significance Sam is able to bear him until he can bear him no longer even that strength gives out and he falters crawling upward when his will could drive him no further and his limbs gave way he stopped and laid his master gently down Look at that opposition, by the way, contained within that sentence. When his will could drive him no further and his limbs gave way, when he is so exhausted that he cannot continue, his limbs literally give out, what does he do? He stops and lays his master gently down. Sam's strength has abandoned him, but not utterly. He is incapable of moving further, but he is not incapable of caring for his master. That, well, there's a special reservoir of strength within Sam that he can can tap into for that. Yeah, yeah um honestly though says marshall <laughs> marshall says honestly though, piggyback is a pretty decent way to carry someone i guess it would have been too much of a different mental picture of sam brought Fro- frodo up in a fireman carry yes uh, there we go skyrim yes good from marshall and from uh, from artful fox too <laughs> i'm very glad <laughs> um yeah good okay so that gets us i'm realizing now this is this is going to be terrible are we really not going to make it to the end of tonight's reading uh before the end of tonight's session i'm very sorry for that um Let's see what we can do. Let's move ever onward here. So so yes, of course. Sam carrying Frodo, a great moment, a triumph of of friendship and of camaraderie and of service here between Sam and Frodo, but still, even then, that great strength, that great resilience, that great defiance, still also being crushed by the enormity, and then that beat of hopelessness at the end. Thank you, Sam. How far is there to go, right? Frodo completely subjugating himself to Sam in this moment. Yes, Sam, you gave me a ride. Sam says, just tell tell him where to go and he'll go, right? That is Sam's only need from Frodo, is tell me where to go and I'll do it. I can make it happen, Master Frodo. I swear I can. Then they get halfway up the flank. Sam's strength gives out. Thank you, Sam. How far is there to go? I don't know," said Sam. "Because I don't know where we're going. This moment of hope. We're climbing a mountain. We are doing this impossible thing, and I don't know where we're going. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty tough. Let's um, move onward. Wow, to the return of uh, the return of Gollum here so foot by foot like small gray insects they crept up the slope they came to the path and found that it was broad paved with broken rubble and beaten ash frodo clambered onto it and then moved as if by some compulsion he turned slowly to face the east Far off the shadows of Sauron hung, but torn by some gust of wind out of the world or else moved by some great disquiet within, the mantling clouds swirled and for a moment drew aside, and there he saw, rising black, blacker and darker than the vast shades amid which it stood, the cruel pinnacles and iron crown of the topmost tower of Barad-dûr. One moment only uh, One moment only. it stared out, but as from some great window immeasurably high there stabbed northward a flame of red, the flicker of a piercing eye, and then the shadows were furled again and the terrible vision was removed. The eye was not turned to them. It was gazing north to where the captains of the West stood at bay, and thither all its malice was now bent as the power moved to strike its deadly blow. But Frodo, at that dreadful glimpse, f- fell as one stricken mortally. His hand sought the chain about his neck. Sam knelt by him. Faint, almost inaudibly, he heard Frodo whispering, "Help me, Sam! Help me, Sam! Hold my hand! I can't stop it." Sam took his master's hands and laid them together, palm to palm, and kissed them. Then, as he held them gently between, his, then he held them gently between his own, the thought came suddenly to him. He spotted us. It's all up, or soon will be. Now, Sam Gamgee, this is the end of ends again he lifted frodo and drew his hands down to his own breast letting his master's legs dangle then he bowed his head and struggled off toward the climbing road it was not as easy a way to take as it had looked at first by fortune the fires that had poured forth in the great turmoils when sam stood upon Kereth Ungle had flowed down mainly on the southern and western slopes and the road on this side was not blocked Yet in many places it had crumbled away or was crossed by gaping rents. After climbing eastward for some time, it bent back upon itself at a sharp angle and went westward for a space. Then at the bend, it was cut deep through a crag of old weathered stone once long ago vomited from the mountain's furnaces. Panting under his load, Sam turned the bend, and even as he did so out of the corner of his eye, he had a glimpse of something falling from the crag, like a small piece of black stone that had toppled off as he passed. A sudden weight smote him, and he crashed forward, tearing the backs of his hands that still clasped his master's. Then he knew what had happened, for above him as he lay, he heard a hated voice. Wicked master, it hissed. Wicked master cheats us, cheats Smeagol, Gollum. He mustn't go that way, he mustn't hurt Precious. Give it to Smeagol, yes, give it to us, give it to us. And so Gollum returns to the narrative, yes. Mm z star calling out, unless I missed it, we skipped the line that Sam knew all the arguments of despair and wouldn't listen to them. I guess we covered other iterations of it. Yeah, unfortunately, even in this relatively short chapter, I had to uh, I had to cut some material. But yeah, it's it's very, very tough. Yeah. Good, good. All right. So, um foot by foot like small gray insects says wilhelm scream why is that phrase so audibly familiar to me is it narrated in the return of the king animated film i'm racking my brain foot by foot like small gray insects i have to say it doesn't ring a bell for me wilhelm scream but if anyone can recognize it then the people in the chat can recognize it i am assured of that um so here we are climbing. So we get the, the, the moment of, of clarity here of Baradour, right? Frodo clambered on and then as if moved by some compulsion, he turned slowly to face the east as if, then moved as if by some compulsion, moved by a compulsion to, uh, to view the, the Tower of Badadur. He turned slowly to face the east, far off the shadows of Sauron hung, but torn by some gust of wind out of the world or else moved by some great disquiet within. The clouds part and we see this flicker of flame northward, right? The eye was not turned to them. It was gazing north to where the captains of the West stood at bay and thither all its malice was now bent as the power moved to strike its deadly blow and Frodo falls. But let's be completely clear. This is the moment... When the Great Plan of the Host of the West Succeeds. Everything that happens at Morannon, everything that happens at the Black Gate, everything that has happened since the host of the West, since the the, the the captains of the West left Minas Tirith behind and started marching toward the Black Gate, all of it is justified in this second. That moment of attention, where Frodo is standing naked in the dark, right there in front of Barad-dur, right with a clean line of sight between him and the clouds rent and part, and for a second he can see the iron topped pinnacle of barad He can see the Eye itself in that moment all would be lost unless the host of the west is suddenly is currently camped at at Moranon. That is the moment when the plan, the, the plan that is formulated in the last debate actually works. This is it. It's not a plan that works generally. We've had some references to this before, of course. This is one of the reasons that Mordor is so quiet is that the orcs have all been marshaled at the Black Gate to uh, to lay this snare for the Host of the West and to finally destroy them. This is also, you know, we've had previous acknowledgements of the fact that that Sauron's gaze is diverted, that his attention is diverted by the presence of the Host of the West at Morannon. But this is the moment where all of that work and all of that struggle and all of that pain and hardship has paid off. This is the moment when Aragorn's plan works perfectly. Actually, Aragorn slash Gandalf slash, you know, Prince Imriel of Dol Amroth are great captains of the West. This is the moment where it all works out, and I should probably credit Pippin too there. And Sam isn't done. In this moment, Sam realizes he spotted us. It's all up or it soon will be. Now, Sam Gamgee, this is the end of ends. And hey, what happens in this moment of despair, in this moment of hopelessness? What happens? Sam finds new hope, new determination, new strength, new resolution. And he continues onward again. He lifted Frodo and drew his hands down his own breast, letting his master's legs dangle. Marshall, that's the uh, fireman's lift that you're getting there, right? He's over the shoulder. He's got his, his master's legs uh, dangling down behind him and and his... his uh, Frodo's palms on his his chest as he's holding him. At least that's how I read that. Then he bowed his head and struggled up the climbing road. He's still climbing. He's still climbing. He's still climbing. This road is not easy to pass, but it is allowing a swifter passage than um, than just climbing the the naked and rock strewn hillside. And certainly an easier passage than on the south or the westward side, where the uh, the the flow from the the volcano has so recently scoured the landscape again. And then. The attack, then the fall. Wicked Master, Wicked Master cheats us, cheats Smeagol. Gollum, he mustn't go that way. He mustn't hurt Precious. Give it to Smeagol. Yes, give it to us. Give it to us. Gollum, at this point, knows exactly what Frodo has planned. He mustn't hurt the Precious. He mustn't go that way. He mustn't hurt Precious. This is it. Golem has either known for some time or has figured out why, are th- why aren't they going to Baradur? Why aren't they delivering the precious into the hands of Sarah? Ah, oh, hell, there is actually something worse that they could do. They could destroy it. Here we go, ready to throw down. This is uh, yeah, yeah, good. I'm catching up with the chat here, seeing if anyone has figured out that uh, yeah, 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 okay. Um. Let's see if anyone has figured out why that sounded so familiar. Yep, nope, we don't have it. Uh, oh it is says wilhelm scream it's by john huston narrating foot by foot like small gray insects nice to know my brain still works wilhelm scream fantastic good job good job yeah (laughs) excellent 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 and jackie crediting too thank goodness gandalf sent sam off with frodo and that sam snuck into the council thank goodness for sam Gamgee. right we're going to talk about that a little bit right at the end of of these events at the end of all things in fact um Which I'm just now realizing, guys, we're not going to get to. There is just too much happening here. So what we're going to do, let's do one more slide and then we'll wrap up because also... um for those of you joining me in the podcast version, I don't think I've mentioned this in the podcast version, but I am currently in my new studio space, which is overheating horribly. It is a million degrees in here right now, so I apologize if uh, if I'm feeling a little more distracted and taking a few more sips of my uh, cooling adult beverage than I normally do in the course of, of tonight's podcast. So we'll call it quits. We'll do one more one more slide here, and then we'll get to the actual destruction of the ring and the fields of Kermalin next week. I think that is going to be our best plan. Here we are, our last slide for this evening. Frodo looked at him as if one now far away. Yes. I must go on he said farewell sam this is the end at last on mount doom doom shall fall farewell he turned and went on walking slowly but erect up the climbing path no said sam at least i can deal with you he leapt forward with drawn blade drawn blade ready for battle, but Gollum did not spring. He fell flat upon the ground and whimpered. Don't kill us, he wept. Don't hurt us with nasty, cruel steel. Let us live, yes, live just a little longer. Lost, lost, we're lost, and when precious goes, we'll die, yes, die into the dust. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long, fleshless fingers. Dust, he hissed. Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved, and also it seemed the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring, and now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. Oh, curse you, you stinking thing, he said. Go away. Be off. I don't trust you, not as far as I could kick you, but be off, or I shall hurt you, yes, with nasty, cruel steel. Gollum got up on all fours and backed away for several paces, and then he turned, and as Sam aimed a kick at him, he fled away down the path. Sam gave no more heed to him. He suddenly remembered his master. He looked up the path and could not see him. As far as as he trudged, as, as fast as he could, excuse me, he trudged up the road. If he had looked back, he might have seen not far below Gollum turn again, and then with a wild light of madness glaring in his eyes, come swiftly but warily, creeping on behind a slinking shadow among the stones. Seastar so he saying here, It's nice for Frodo and Sam that they didn't need to kill Gollum, or much of anyone, really. Sam might or might not have mortally wounded Shelob, but the orcs around them killed each other off, and other people and the Ring's destruction killed the rest of their foes... True. Well, yeah, Marshall, of course, also calling out, he could not strike this thing lying in the dust. Pity. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Took all the way back to uh, to Shadows of the Past and Frodo's very famous conversation with Gandalf. Well, well, not just pity stays Sam's hand in this moment. There is an element of pity, but there is also an element of sympathy. There is an element of of co-identification here, right? Sam has been unable to muster pity for Gollum because he has been unable to understand what it is that Gollum is going through, but now he can. Now he can identify having borne the ring himself. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring, and now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again, but Sam had no words to express what he felt. Yes, there is an element of pity here, pity, of course, as we've distinguished before, pity is a recognition of suffering that that acknowledges or that, that that does not require any sympathy. It does not require a similar experience, right Sympathy is oh, that sucks, I've been where you are, I know how bad that feels. Pity is I have never been where you are. I can imagine that it sucks. It must be awful for you. I am so sorry. Right. That is the the technical dif- uh, differentiation, the technical point of distinction between pity and sympathy, in a sense, both kind of wrapped up in a, in a broader sense of empathy and the acknowledgement of, of of suffering in a fellow human being, something which is desperately needed in the world today. If you've been reading the news over the course of the last week, which I'm sure that you have, because God knows it's very difficult to avoid reading the news here in the mire and the midst of 2018. Um, so Sam is feeling pity. He's feeling uh, an extension of his sympathy. That is to say that, that he can he can sympathize. He had borne the ring. Now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved in that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. He has a share of Gollum's experience. But now he is able to pity Gollum. He is able to identify that suffering. He is able to to give it some fraction of expression, even internally, right? He can't find the words to verbalize this. He can't... He can't actually connect empathically or emotionally with Gollum in this moment. He can't say, no, this is terrible. I am so sorry for all that you've gone through. I am sorry that the precious has been this blight upon your mind and will. I'm sorry that it has ruined you mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually. I am sorry for all of this. He can't bring himself to say that. He can't, or or not bring himself to say that. He cannot articulate it. He doesn't have the words to express what he felt. So instead he he shoes Gollum away, right? Having sent his master on to complete his task. And now standing before the final obstacle to that task, Sam finds himself feeling pity sam in this moment is demonstrating kingly virtue sam in this moment is demonstrating that great pity which we've associated before with with the truly great with aragorn with gandalf but also with bilbo also with frodo and now sam too sam splitting that 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 or, or splitting <laughs> unifying that that gorgeous uh, duality between the small and the great, I suppose, right? He is small of stature, but great of heart always. Yeah, good. Nikki saying that's what separates the bad guys from the good. Though Gollum deserves death. Sam won't kill him in cold blood. Yes, we're going to have to talk about this a little next week, right? Because the triumph of virtue and the failure of virtue, the loss of virtue, the the success and failure of the good and the great is presented to us in a very complicated way right at the end of this week's reading of of this particular chapter, which we must conclude. Now, friends, fair folk, I'm afraid that is going to do it. Yes, his noble nature notes notes, uh, Angela there in the chat. Excellent. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, Let's... um, Let's call it quits there. Next week, then, we will conclude. I still have four slides, five slides, four slides, I think, for uh, for the rest of this chapter, which is basically every word of the rest of this chapter. We're going to spend a good 45 minutes, if not an hour, outright on that. And then we will look at chapter four of book six of The Lord of the Rings, The Fields of Cormalon? Uh, I'm never sure how to pronounce that. Cormalon, I think, sounds more natural to me in my... Uh, in my sense of, of Gondorian naming I, I think Cormalan sounds sounds pretty good so I think that's what we're going to go with but uh, I, will, I will look up some alternate pronunciations for next time. Guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm sorry that we didn't make it all the way to the end of all things. This is now two weeks that I have promised the end of this story and we haven't made it but next week for sure for definite we are going to get to the actual destruction of the One Ring. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you all so much for putting up with my new studio environment here this evening. Hopefully this uh, podcast will come out sounding okay and will sound even better next week that's a pinky swear from me so as i say next week um what is that 10 p.m eastern 9 p.m central june the 21st i hope you'll be able to join me for that live session i will talk to you all again very soon until then good night and fly you fools